All righty. Well, it's good to be back here in Austin, Texas. I'm wearing burnt orange for you guys. All right. Good. I get a little shout out at the beginning of the sermon. Uh, we are finishing up our Essentials message series. It's a three-parter, and first was God's Word, second was prayer, and the last one that we're um, covering is mission. Now, if Word and prayer are like the food and water that's necessary for our sustenance in our spiritual life, then mission would be the purpose for which these nutrients are taken in on a regular basis. I don't know if you've ever heard this from your doctor, but I hear this from my doctor all the time. Mr. Lee, you need to eat right and, what is it? Exercise. Someone says sleep well. I do that all the time. Okay, so no, no problems there. But it's the exercise part. That's the part that I have a hard time with. And so, you know, if we're, if we're taking in God's word and we're praying, it should be for some purpose. And that purpose is what we're covering today in terms of the mission that is uh, upon us as Christians. Now, at a recent retreat, one of the questions that I fielded was the question of why doesn't Jesus take us to heaven immediately as soon as we become Christian? Now, that's an excellent question because heaven is far better than here. Right? And heaven is where we're going to be in that uh, perfect relationship with our Heavenly Father with Jesus Christ, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we'll have perfect fellowship without any sin getting in the way. Why not start that right now? And God, take us up there right now. But this is where it's related to this prompt of the third essential. The reason why Jesus doesn't take us up to heaven immediately is because of this mission, this unfinished mission that we need to partake in. So that heaven could be even a greater blessing, more than just for you and for me as Christians. We need to invite more and more souls to take us with us to enjoy heaven for all of eternity together. And Jesus gives us a glimpse of this mission in Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 through 38. It's on, their, uh, on your handout, and I'll go ahead and read this for us. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And we'll pause there. Now, in verse 36, it has this kind of the way that Jesus sees the crowd and the way that Jesus sees people as harassed and helpless. Jesus went from town and villages and cities and teaching and proclaiming the gospel and even meeting their physical needs performing miracles, but in the way that he sees everyone, especially as they're coming towards him, seeking Jesus out, is he has compassion on them because they are harassed and helpless. Now, to be sure, back in those days, almost everyone was dirt poor. The poverty rate was just staggering. And even trying to get enough to eat each day and night was a struggle for most families. And not only that, um, they were heavily oppressed by the Roman government authorities. 
They were taxed like crazy with the power uh, just overbearing upon them, breathing down their necks, even in their temple. Now, today in America, in today's day and age, I mean, we're not like harassed and helpless like, like they were, you know, seemingly, right? Because we've got abundance of food. I mean, even though you don't like the food that you have, you still have food, right? And yes, tax season is right around the corner. I got to do my taxes before April, you know, 15th, 16th, or 17th, right? But we're not so heavily taxed like the Roman authorities did to the Jews back then. And so we're not, you know, quote unquote, harassed and helpless like the crowds that Jesus saw. But I wonder if Jesus were to take a look at society and people today, even you and me, maybe he would also see us with this description being an apt description of the day in the life of the people in here in America in the 21st century. A recent documentary that uh, many of us watch, and I think some of you might get a chance to watch this in your, in your um, small um, groupings and gatherings, is uh, The Social Dilemma. This is a documentary that's been um, highly acclaimed and it has won some awards and such. And this is a, a documentary that highlights the perils of the internet and the social media even as testified to by the very people who actually invented the algorithms, Twitter and all of these things, Facebook. And it was pretty disturbing and it was pretty sad to watch. And honestly, the, the one moment, I wasn't prepared for this because I, you know, I hear about this all the time, but one moment in the documentary was this moment where this, I think maybe like a preteen girl, she, she's on her app and she's posting a, 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 a snapshot of herself and then she posts it and then she's looking for all of the, the, the comments, right? And then it starts out with cute, uh, you know, so beautiful and all of these things. And then there's one comment. It was just an emoji of an elephant. And then the next thing is that she notices her ear. And that person, that friend or someone out there is making fun of her, her bigger ears. And the next scene is for her staring at herself in the mirror with tears rolling down her face. Helpless and harassed. Yes, it's in today's generation. It may be closer than you might think. I mean, it's not just back then, back then when they didn't have much. Even today, we have much. We have a lot. And still we feel this. All of the insecurities that, you know, media and you know, all of the, the ads is just really tugging at it. Pushing the right buttons so that we could buy the things, so that we could feel a little secure or a little bit you know, prettier or more handsome or tougher. Yes, we are helpless and harassed. You know, it's not just in terms of the internet, just by and large on the college campus. I mean, this is something that has been just spiking up, especially during the pandemic. But don't blame everything on the pandemic. Pandemic was just the past two years. Here we're seeing the trend line going up and to the right in these areas of depression, anxiety, and thoughts of suicide. This is for college students. And as I put up a slide like this, you know, I would imagine there's some of you who's making up these stats. This is a real problem on every college campus.
on this college campus, on another college campus, on your college campus, everywhere it's the same trend. It was really sad to read this one New York Times article just um, this past December where a dad lost his son to suicide. And he, he says this, my son died of loneliness. Not of COVID, but loneliness. He didn't have his friends. He didn't have his support group. And when you think about that sentiment, I'm sure you have some friends who you know is struggling with this. And perhaps you yourself have struggled with this, or even right now. And Jesus sees you with compassion. Jesus sees the crowd on this campus and on every campus. College, high school, middle school, every city, every town, every village. He sees people the same. As harassed and helpless with the troubles of life, helplessly all alone, dying of loneliness. Where is the help that they need? Especially when everyone's seeking to fend and protect them, themselves. I mean, no wonder they all feel alone because everyone's just chasing after their own security. You know, it's not just on the college campuses. It's even in the workplaces. You know, you get a job, you think it's a little bit better. No, man. You're going, to be filled, uh, you're going to be filled with so much pressure to perform well, better than the other person, to outshine the other person, to get more likes or promotions. And it's going to extract more than the 40 hours a week that they're paying for. And, get this, they're helpless and harassed because they could terminate you so mercilessly. One Monday morning, after they revoked your card key and login over the weekend and boxed up your desk, you'll show up to the front door not able to get in, and they'll meet you at the door with that box. You talk about Jesus seeing people as helpless and harassed. And as verse 36 continues on, like sheep without a shepherd, that's what I think Jesus would see society today. You know, sheep without a shepherd, back then they understood that sheep cannot protect themselves from all of the predators, all of the wild animals, and they are quite vulnerable. You know, when you have, an, when you have like a wolf versus a sheep, I mean, it's game over every single time. Until you have a shepherd who could defend and protect and shield. And it's not just from the active predators, but it's from the terrain. I mean, it's, it's the lay of the land. It's where you got cliffs on one side, and you make a wrong turn, and you slip, and you slip down that slippery slope. The, the sheep would oftentimes get themselves into all kinds of binds, entangled in thorns and thistles, that they can't get themselves out of. They're stuck. They're trapped. They get injured, and they wander off all alone, and they are helplessly lost. That's the picture that Jesus has in his mind as he sees people back then and as he sees people like you and me. They need a good shepherd, and Jesus presents himself as the shepherd that, that God would send. 
And he himself, the son of God, comes into this role as the good shepherd who seeks the lost to bring back the strayed, bind up the injured, strengthen the weak. And as famously described and pictured in Psalm 23, he is in real life this good shepherd. I know that this is a very familiar passage, but as we're kind of thinking about, you know, our, you know, our, who we are as sheep without a shepherd, let's read this together, okay? Let's read this Psalm 23 together to get us to, to desire and hunger and yearn after this kind of a shepherd. Let's read this together. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is the good shepherd that we all need in life. Man, I need a good shepherd like this. How many of you need a good shepherd like this? Oh yeah, we all need this kind of a good shepherd who's going to lead us to the green pastures. Green pastures, still waters. Restoring my soul that is so like anxious that is so filled with worries and burdens, parched, dried out. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness. He guides me. You know, so many people today is like, I don't know what to do with my life. I don't know what to do with my future. Here is the good shepherd who says, I'm going to lead you to the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I mean, that's the most frightening place to be. I mean, you're, you're near death. And he is there with us. And his rod and his staff, they comfort me because that's the protection that we're, we're craving for. We're desiring that kind of security. And he's preparing that table He's anointing my head. My cup overflows. There is bounty and blessing. And surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, not just here on earth, but the dwelling place in heaven, the house of the Lord forever and ever. Amen. And Jesus ultimately says, I am the good shepherd. John 10, 11. And he says, I'm not just going to lead you. I'm going to lay down my life for you. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. This is the good news for all those who are harassed and helpless as sheep without a shepherd. And the gospel says, not just this. But the gospel gives you the picture of God's plan for you. You know, this past week, uh, Susanna was reading a book uh, written by this one um, preacher, you know, that we encountered at one of the conferences recently. And one of the turning points for him in his life 
Because he had a rough, rough life, far worse than, than you and I could imagine. And it was this one verse in the Old Testament. This is a popular verse. I know many people have encountered this. This is Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. And this one verse really changed his entire paradigm of life and of God and of himself. That God's not out to get him or get him into all kinds of mess. It's not for evil, but it's for welfare, for his good. To give him, in spite of all of his past, to give him a future that is filled with hope and life and flourishing. And sure enough, he is on mission to proclaim this good news. How many people have you and I encountered on a daily basis who need to hear a message even as simple as this? Everywhere, on every campus, every town, every workplace, they all need to hear this good news. That God loves them, that they are precious in God's sight, that Jesus Christ is that good shepherd who would even lay down his life for them that they could be forgiven of all of their sins. This is the good news. You know, on a college campus, 20 million students walk up and down the quad, down the halls. Of the 20 million college students in the United States, only 2 to 4% are self-professing Christians. You know what that means? That means at least 95% of the people who pass by you, or you're sitting in that lecture hall, 95% would be living day to day without this good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ that would give them a hope and a future and a meaning for their lives that's worth living for. There's no wonder that Jesus says next, going back to Matthew chapter 9, He said to his disciples in verse 37, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. The harvest is plentiful because 95% of the people that you're going to pass by, they're in need of hearing this gospel message of this good news. Even a simple news of God loves you and God has a future and a hope for you. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Ms. Susanna and I, as as we drive up and down the Midwest, hundreds and hundreds of miles of farmland, cornfields, and harvest, harvest lands. I mean, it's like this going on for like hours on end. Okay? And if there happens to be a bumper crop of harvest in a particular year where the rain's came just at the right time where the sun was shining and the weather conditions were just perfect, ideal for a bumper crop of harvest. And that year you have this kind of a yield. Guess what? It's not time to celebrate. It's time to labor (laughs) because it's not because of a hurricane that's going to swarm through or plagued of locusts coming through and eating up this, this harvest. No time, time will kill it. Time, if that harvest season is past, 
If that window of opportunity is shut, you can't rewind the clock and say, give me another hour to harvest a little bit more. It's crisis when there is a harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few and they don't have enough harvesters to labor in this harvest. It's an emergency situation. You know, we've all taken COVID tests, right? And one of the things that we sign off is, I don't know if you've read the fine print, this is emergency authorization only, okay? You guys remember that? We're like, I don't care, I want that test, okay? Because this is emergency. We've all been in this emergency crisis situation of epic proportions as national and worldwide crisis. 3M, the makers of Post-its, they said, the, the government told 3M, you need to make more N95 masks. Because that's one of, the, one of the providers for N95 masks. Re-outfit your, your, your workforce. CPAP machines. You know, I, I have sleep apnea, so I have one of those CPAP machines that just forces air into my you know, nostrils. Because otherwise, I'll, I'll stop breathing every now and then, right? That's what sleep apnea is. CPAP machine makers were told by the government, this is emergency. You need to do something to retrofit this so that these CPAP machines could become respirators for emergency use. Scientists, they're the heroes, right? And the heroines of the day, right? Because scientists at Pfizer, Moderna, Johnson & Johnson, and all these other companies, they were putting in tons of extra time around the clock, not just 40 hours a week. It was almost like they had a second job. And why? Because there's an emergency. They need to get the vaccine out in record time because time is short. Time is ticking away. People are dying. They're perishing. National Guard were mobilized to give vaccine shots because it's not some threat out there. It's threat right here, COVID. I don't want to keep belaboring this point, but lives are on the line, and this calls for this kind of a radical redeployment. It's in fact not crazy when there's a crisis on hand. It would just be crazy if you just went on life as usual and as normal as before in such a time of crisis. And so if Jesus is telling us and getting all of us to consider this crisis at hand, then what are the steps involved in laboring for this harvest? That would be the next question. And so here I'm going to turn to Romans chapter 10, verses 13 through 15. For it says the stepwise sequence is very logical, it's very systematic, it's very simple. Verse 13, it starts with, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That is the good news. That regardless of what you have done, how much time you have spent sinning in your life, even if you're at your deathbed, no matter how far you've gone, if you call on the name of the Lord, believing in his finished work on the cross to save them from their sins and surrender their life to Christ as Lord, then they will be saved. That's the premise. That's the foundational truth of our gospel message. That is, this is why this is good news. 
Everyone who calls on the Lord, the name of the Lord will be saved. Verse 13. And then it continues on. So logically, what's the next logic? Verse 14. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? That makes sense. How will they know if they don't know even the person of Jesus Christ and what Jesus has done on the cross? That this is a free gift of salvation. And then the next line is the next logical extension. And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And then the next logical step is, and how are they to hear without someone preaching? And then the next is verse 15. How are they to preach unless they are sent? So logical, right? The sequence. And then it goes on to have all of us consider our feet. Take a look at your feet. I don't know what shoes you're wearing. Maybe it's a little dusty. But it says here at the end, as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news! Exclamation point. How are we to engage in the labor of the harvest of souls that are dying away? It is through these steps involved. So that we could be sent, so that we could go and, and walk towards people who need to hear about this gospel message. And we need to be like this beautiful feet who preach the good news. And they need to speak. They need to speak about the truths of the gospel, of who Jesus is, what Jesus has done on the cross, that Jesus died on the cross for their sins. And then if they believe and call upon the name of the Lord as Jesus, you're my savior and Lord, then they will be saved. Now, at this point, you might be saying, I say amen to that. And that's why, pastor, we hired you. Go and preach. Okay. Is that what you're saying? I hope not. All right. But that is my role. It's like, pastor, you go get him. All right. Good. Amen. Let's go for lunch. Now, if it's just the pastors and if it's just the missionaries being sent overseas to do this work, this is mission impossible. There is not enough. There is not enough full-time pastors and far fewer missionaries. If you really believe that this is the way that God's uh, great commission is going to be fulfilled, then that means everyone needs to become a pastor or missionary, right? But this is where we need to... Step through some of our foundational doctrines. And in fact, one of the things that is essential to our understanding of ourselves as Christians is found in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. This is the priesthood of all believers, not just the clergy, not just the priests, not just the, the, the pastors and the missionaries, but everyone is called into this mission. No matter what kind of job you have, no matter what you do for a living. And here it says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Now, this is where I, I'm so glad that I'm preaching this message in the great state of Texas because y'all know 
what I'm about to say, okay? And I just gave it away. Because this you, all of the you's here, it's not individual, singular, tense you. It is plural. The pronoun is second person plural. It's y'all. Can y'all say that? Y'all. Now you got to, can you look around and say that? Y'all. Y'all. Those of you screaming in from Chicago or California, you got to do that southern drawl, okay? Y'all, okay? This is plural. This is for everyone, not just that one single person who's called to be a priest or a pastor or clergy or missionary. It's every follower of Jesus Christ to declare, to proclaim the excellencies of our Heavenly Father, His great plan of salvation. We have received mercy. Now we need to be dispensers of this kind of mercy to one another. And this is where we need to kind of think through carefully, because I know that there's some people who might actually have picked up a line or two from the Bible. It's like, hey, pastor, but doesn't the Bible also say that, you know, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God? That, that you could be just a, a faithful, you know, shear, shoe, shoemaker or repair person or, you know, programmer, and you could just focus on doing a good job at that. And through that kind of good, faithful work in that one line of occupation, that you're going to somehow, you know, radiate the gospel message to other people? Why do I need to be actively engaged in, like, sharing the gospel, talking to people about the gospel, evangelizing? Now, that line that is oftentimes quoted, it is quoted kind of out of context. And this is where I want to get you to be looking at the proper context of that one line where, where it is here, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God, right? So you could do anything you want. And as long as you're doing that for the glory of God, then, then God is pleased with that. Well, let's take a look at the context of that line. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 23 and onward, Paul has been saying, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. The context of this line is that we should be doing things to build up the body of Christ, the church. And then in verse 24, it says, let no one seek his own good but the good of his neighbor. So here, once again, the setup and the context is not your individual preferences or individual likes and dislikes or individual, you know, what you want to benefit uh, from, but for the good of the neighbor. And then in verse 31, where we find this line, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. And because he's been talking about like different kinds of foods that different, different people with different, you know, beliefs are going to be um, tempted and they're going to struggle if you eat that and, and back and forth. And so he is saying that in verse 33, this is, I think, one of the punchlines here. Just as I try to please every, everyone in everything I do, not seeking my, not seeking my own advantage but that of many, that they may be saved. That's the big punchline. 
that whatever I do, I should do it with this mission in mind. And then he ends, actually transitions to chapter 11. He says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. And when we take a look at Apostle Paul, man, he was a man on mission. He, he was on mission as if this is an emergency, this is a crisis, and he is going wherever to proclaim the gospel message so that they may be saved. After all, Jesus' invitation to us, Jesus' invitation to you and to me is not just to applaud what he is doing or to promote others who are doing these things but it's rather to be a follower, to be a follower. For this, there's this one little quote from this uh, article I remember reading a long time ago. I, I don't quote Soren Kierkegaard much in my sermons, but this is one little excerpt from an article that he wrote, uh, Followers, Not Admirers, that I think it really nails this, okay? And I'll go ahead and read this. What then is the difference between an admirer and a follower? A follower is or strives to be what he admires. An admirer, however, keeps himself personally detached. He fails to see that what is admired involves a claim upon him, and thus he fails to be or strives strive to be what he admires. The admirer never makes any true sacrifices. He always plays it safe. Though in words, phrases, songs, he is inexhaustible about how highly he prizes Christ. He, renou- he renounces nothing, will not reconstruct his life, and will not let his life express what it is he supposedly admires. Then now he gives a contrast. Not so for the follower. No, no. The follower aspires with all his strength to be what he admires. And if Jesus lived his life here on earth, yes, he had, you know, he was trained up as a carpenter and all, but there was a mission that he was actively engaged in, and this is mission to seek and save the lost. And he says to everyone who would follow him, he says, follow me. Follow me. Not just admire me. And I would add to this list, you know, not just be a spectator. You know, coming to church and, and examining what Jesus has done and just, you know, maybe attending a service in Jesus' name or praising his name or applauding him or donating to his cause. No, it's not admirers, not spectators, not attenders, not praisers, not applauders, not even donators. It is followers. That's Jesus' invitation. To me and to you, y'all. So now, does this mean that everyone should follow to this extent and actually like quit their jobs and all everyone become pastors and missionaries? I'm not saying that. Some of you might be called into that. Some, some, for some, it may be. But this is where, when we take a look at the example of the early church, it gives us the kind of paradigm, the kind of the way that they worked this out. 
In Acts chapter 18, verses 1 through 4, we we read this incidental note. I don't know if you paid much attention to this, but this is after Paul, um, after this, it says in verse 1, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked. For they were tent makers by trade. You notice that? This, these two people, this husband and wife, Aquila and Priscilla, as well as Paul, they were working as tent makers. They were making tents, selling tents. That's how they paid the bills, got food on the table. And then it says in verse 4, And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. So basically, this is the, the framework that we have. It's like they have their day job. You know, this is how they're making their, their, their uh, means. And then beyond that, they are actively engaged in proclaiming the gospel message. And this is why back in the old days, the, the term tent maker was was used even of missionaries where they would have their their employment you know it's like you know i'm a i'm a, a english teacher uh, overseas that's my tent maker occupation and while i'm there overseas in this country that has you know 95% of the people unreached with the gospel message i'm sharing the gospel with them on nights and weekends that's my that's my mission Tent maker, bivocational. This is a term that, you know, at our church we talk around because this is exactly what this is. Because you have your vocation, your work, and then you have another, which is part of this mission as a royal priesthood. Proclaiming the excellencies of Jesus Christ and the gospel message. Now, bivocation, it kind of means like, it kind of has connotations like maybe half this and half that. And so more recently, it's been co-vocation. This is the term that's used in Christian circles these days. And this is what, you know, our church has many of such co-vocational ministers, just like Aquila and Priscilla. And Apostle Paul, he even writes elsewhere that, you know, Timothy and uh, this guy named Salvanius, he, they also were in this trade. They were working while they were ministering. To be sure, for Apostle Paul, later on, as he, his engagement and his demands upon ministry got even more increased, he was funded by other people who would contribute, and that, that became kind of like a full-time ministry uh, position like that. But I think as D.L. Moody once said, if the world is going to be reached, I am convinced that it must be done by men and women of average talent, clergy or laity, the priesthood of all believers. And the way that this happens is through us just giving and offering up to Jesus what we have. I want to end with this passage. This is kind of like, you know, the, the same kind of lines that we find in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 6. This is uh, verse 34. Jesus saw a great crowd, had compassion on them. There were sheep without a shepherd. And they began to teach them, right? And this is thousands of people. 
And then um, he said, the disciples, they're getting a little worried. It's like, this is a desolate place and the hour is late. Send them away so that they could go and feed themselves. They're getting hungry. And then verse 37, but he answered them, you give them something to eat. You give them something to eat. This is the feeding of the 5,000 plus. And then, of course, they're scratching their heads. I mean, how can, we don't have that kind of resource. And then verse 38, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And they've searched. And this little boy, you know this story. Little boy with a packed pack lunch. Five loaves and two fish. How could this feed the multitude? This is the way that God invites us to share in his heart of compassion, to see the world the same way, and to initiate the first steps involved in being laborers for the harvest. And that is to bring what we have, do what we can, and let's see what Jesus does with it. You know, we have been featuring some of our, uh, our, of our members across our locations serving in these bivocational capacities, co-vocational ministries. Um, and um, as we end this message, we want to hear from Jessica in our Southern California ministry. And as you hear this, hopefully you'll pick up this, this one tone of like, how did she actually grow into becoming this kind of a person and you'll see that it's, you know, I'll, I'll give away one line. It's like, she said yes to this one opportunity. And she said yes to this other thing. Oh, and let me see what I can do. I'll, t- I'll do that. I'll try that. So let's go ahead and watch this and I'll come back up and wrap things up. 